There's so much health advice floating around, online, among friends. But who can you really trust? Trust the experts. Listen to the world's brightest medical minds, our very own Cleveland Clinic experts. We ask them real questions, tough and intimate health questions, and we get real answers, all originally recorded live. Hi, thanks for joining us today. I'm your host, Cassandra Holloway, and you're listening to Health Essentials Podcast by Cleveland Clinic. We're broadcasting at Cleveland Clinic's main campus in Cleveland, Ohio, and we're here today with Dr. Dominic Pelly. Thanks for being here. Thanks for having me. Great to be here. Dr. Pelly is a spine surgeon at Cleveland Clinic's Center for Spine Health, and today we're going to be talking about herniated discs. Before we begin, we want to remind our listeners that this is for informational purposes only and does not replace your own doctor's advice. So 80% of people in the United States will experience back pain at some point in their life. So we know it's common, we know it's frequent, and most of us are going to have to deal with it at some point or another. So let's start very high level. Why do we have the discs in our back in the first place? What purpose do they serve? That's a great question. So the discs are usually thought of as a shock absorber in our spine. So the disc is formed by an outer membrane, okay, or uh, fibrosis, called the annulus fibrosis. It's got the same biomechanical makeup as a ligament. So people have heard of like ACL tears and athletes. An ACL is a ligament that attaches one section of bone to the other. It's made of mostly collagen. The outside of the disc is formed of a ligament too. It's just called the annulus fibrosis. The inside of the disc is called the nucleus propulsus. What that is, is the shock absorber section of the disc. Now, the disc does have some biomechanical properties where saying shock absorber is a little bit of a misnomer. It prevents certain types of movements and helps us uh, helps our spine function with um, increasing movement in certain areas. So there's a lot of study on exactly what the disc does, uh, but those are its constituents of what it's made up of. The inside of the disc, uh, the material is gelatinous. And so what that does is it attracts water. There's uh, chemical inside of it called proteoglycans and what they do is they they want water to come into the disc and so when we're young and our spines are still healthy our discs are filled with with water essentially um, and they're tall and they have, they have a nice bright signal on MRI because they have fluid inside of them. As we age, that disc starts to degenerate. Um, sometimes before we age, that disc herniates, which is the, the topic of our podcast here. So let's talk about that, that then. What is actually happening when a disc is herniated? So when you think of just a traditional herniated disc, the way I think about that is is almost like a, a the disc is a jelly donut, okay? And so the outside of the disc is the dough of the donut, that's the annulus fibrosis. The inside of the disc is the jelly, okay? And imagine if you push down on a jelly donut and hit a hole in the dough, right? That jelly is gonna squirt out of it. And uh, kind of basic thinking, a herniated disc work functions about the same way. Sometimes you get a little tear in the ligament on the outside, but one way or another, the inside of the disc, that nucleus propulsus, gets out to the outside of the disc, it herniates out, and that's where the word herniation comes from. Can you get a herniated disc anywhere on the spine? Yes. Top and bottom. Top and bottom. So we get, uh, I treat um, all aspects of the spine from the base of the skull all the way down to the tailbone. And herniated discs occur in every segment except the lower sacrum. And so from L5S1 all the way up to uh, C2, C3, you can get herniated discs. Um, they are most common in the lower lumbar spine. So L4, L5, L5S1 is the area where we most commonly get herniated discs, but they occur frequently in the neck as well. A little bit less so in the thoracic spine because there's less motion 
in the thoracic spine. At least it's thought that's because there's less motion. So the rib cages support our rib cage supports our spine, and it, it functions as a non-mobile segment of our spine when compared to our cervical spine, where we could look around and move our head up and down, and our lumbar spine, where we could bend down, touch our toes, and twist left to twist right. Gotcha. So in today's world, with people, you know looking for their health conditions online and self-diagnosing themselves. There's a lot of uh, names for this. So I'm going to list four of them. Okay. Herniated disc, ruptured disc, bulging disc, and slip disc. Are these all the same things? No. Um, and, and yes, in a sense. So oftentimes what I find is people grab their report from their MRI and they say, listen, I have 27 bulging discs in my spine. Uh, that's a problem. Um, first and foremost, a herniated disc is a problem when it presses on a nerve or when it presses upon the spinal cord. That's when a herniated disc is a problem. So even if you have a report in your hand that says you have herniated discs and you're not having any pain and it's not pressing on any nerves, chances are it's not a problem. Obviously not giving specific healthcare advice here, but in general, that's what I tell my patients. Now, in terms of the different things that uh, you discussed there, so a herniated disc is when that nucleus propulsus escapes out, the jelly gets out of the donut or the air out of the tire, however you want to think about it. Um, a bulging disc is more typical of an arthritic process, where as the disc degenerates, it begins to kind of just bulge out a little bit. Sometimes herniated discs, you can call bulging discs if it doesn't break all the way out of the annulus or the membrane in the back of the spine. There's a ligament that runs down the back of the spine called the posterior longitudinal ligament. Sometimes the herniated disc will stay behind that ligament or it'll even stay kind of within the confines of the annulus, but the whole thing will bulge out and hit a nerve. That can be a bulging disc. Um, you said slip disc. I think that's an old term for when a disc would herniate. There's a condition in your spine where the bones will slip upon each other. That's called spondylolisthesis, and the bones slip forward. So L4 may slip forward on L5, or L5 may slip forward on S1, so on and so forth. And uh, sometimes patients refer to that as a slip disc when it's really the bones that are moving. Great. So let's talk about symptoms then. If someone has a herniated disc, what are they experiencing? So um, they experience the symptoms of that when it presses upon a nerve, okay, or it presses upon the spinal cord. Let's start when it presses upon a nerve. So they get a syndrome called radiculopathy, okay? Um, and what that is is it's how we describe nerve pressure, how you experience that as a patient, usually pain, numbness, and or weakness, okay? It could be one of those three things. It can be all three. It could be two or three, so on and so forth. Uh, so let's say you have a, you're talking your lumbar spine. You have a herniated disc, and now you start to have pain that comes down your leg. Oftentimes, it may start in the back. Um, traverse down the buttock region, you know, over the hip, into the thigh, and down the leg, sometimes all the way into the foot. Depending on the level of that herniated disc, sometimes it's just across the front of the thigh. Sometimes it's all the way into the bottom of the foot. It just depends on which nerve's getting pinched. In the neck, that would cause arm pain. So if you get a herniated disc in your neck, that you may have pain that shoots into your shoulder, down your arm, sometimes even into your hand. That's a little bit different than if you have pressure on your spinal cord. Pressure on your spinal cord is a bit more serious when you start to have symptoms from it. And that's usually a constellation of findings called myelopathy. So people may, if it is occurring in the neck, people may describe numb hands, okay? All five fingers are numb sometimes. Uh, trouble with dexterity of their hands. So oftentimes they'll say, hey, I used to hold cups of coffee all the time, now I drop them. I should be able to open a jar, I can't open a jar. And some ladies say, I have trouble putting my earrings in. Men have trouble buttoning their shirts, so on and so forth. Um, that's dexterity issues in the hand or five motor issues. And then they feel a little bit wobbly when they walk. So they feel as though I don't know exactly where my feet are in space and I have to kind of widen my feet out to make sure that I'm going to not trip or I sometimes like to have my arm on a wall or 
hand on a wall. These are all symptoms of myelopathy. Now, herniated disc can cause pressure on the spinal cord and develop into myelopathy. Interesting. So let's talk about the causes of a herniated disc. What causes this? Uh, so, I mean, all discs tend to degenerate over time uh, in most individuals. So if we look at MRIs of even asymptomatic patients over a certain age, we, we, we see evidence of disc degeneration in majority of those people. Uh, herniated discs in a young, healthy person, sometimes I just tell people it's bad luck. It's probably a combination of um, genetics, and there's something going on with that disc that has allowed it to herniate. Okay, Not, not so much a genetic issue, just, just more prone to a disc herniation. Um, sometimes it's due to activity, right? And so somebody says, you know, I was weightlifting or I was playing this sport and all of a sudden, bow, pain shot down my leg or down my arm. It could be due to that. It can be due to an injury, okay? Some people uh, may get in a motor vehicle accident and have a big herniated disc thereafter. Uh, other times it's something as simple as I was bending down to tie my shoe and then I noticed it. Most often people know when it happens because the pain usually happens right away. Okay, especially if you're talking about a pinched nerve, they have nice, they have a disc herniation, and then the just pain comes on, and they say, "Oh, I was doing this. I remember exactly when it happened." Are there any things that put you at risk? Are there certain jobs or duties that kind of increase your risk of getting this? Um, you know, I, I yes, uh, I think the answer is yes. I think it's kind of hard to talk about that though, um, in in a sense of, you know, everybody tends to do things in their job that may prompt a herniated disc, okay? Um, I wouldn't necessarily some, say some jobs people should avoid or exceptionally high risk. I know we, we see sometimes increased levels of certain cervical spine conditions and truck drivers. I mean, I'm a surgeon. I look down and operate most of the day. You know, I'm, I imagine my neck's going to have to be looked at at some point. Um, certain high-impact exercises um, and high-impact activity can prompt disc herniations. But, you know, I've also seen it in people that have, you know, a relatively uh, straightforward, non-laborious job uh, that end up with a disc herniation. So I wouldn't necessarily say that I would avoid one thing or the other in a way of preventing it. Gotcha. So earlier you mentioned spondylolisthesis. What is that? So spondylolisthesis is a term for when one vertebral body is translated upon another. Most often um, that is when one is translated in front of another. Okay, um, so at L4, L5, or L5, S1, the bones can move forward. Okay, that becomes sometimes a problem when you lay down, and let's say it reduces back, and then you stand up and they translate forward. That can often lead to mechanical type back pain, whereas I'm sitting here, I'm pretty comfortable. I go to move to stand, I start to get pain in my back, or when I'm up and loading my spine with gravity, I get pain. As the bones move forward on each other, sometimes that'll press the nerves and cause a radiculopathy, okay, um, and cause pain to shoot down the leg or, or cause stenosis of all the nerves as they come down and cause pain in the buttocks down the back of the legs when you walk. The spondylolisthesis can be due to a variety of different things. Sometimes it's just due to arthritis. The joints sort of change as they become more arthritic and allow the bones to slip. Sometimes it's due to what we call an ismic spondylolisthesis, where people actually have a defect in the back of their spine that allow the bones to slip, and, and other reasons as well. Interesting. So can the pain be intermittent? Can it come and go with a herniated disc, or is it pretty all the time? It can. Um, I, often people have pain that is sort of always there that comes on with specific activities worse, right? And so uh, one way we test that is when we 
raise someone's leg in the office is called a straight leg raise. And so we raise their leg and it causes the pain to shoot down their leg, the, the nerve type pain. And usually they find in certain aspects, like when they walk upstairs or they have to flex their, their body down, they tend to stretch that nerve and cause it to be painful. Um, it usually doesn't wax and wane too much until it starts to get better. Sometimes it just goes away on its own. It'll wax and wane for a little while and then just resolve. Interesting. So if someone listening to this podcast is, is thinking they're suffering from a herniated disc, um, how long do you recommend that they, they try to wait it out, they try to baby it a little bit, or should they see someone right away if they think this is what they have? I think if you're worried about anything that's going on, I think good advice is always to see a healthcare provider. That's, that's sort of why we feel like we exist in the world, right? Um, there's never a wrong time to do that. Um, I would never worry about, you know, seeing someone unnecessarily. Yeah, if it gets better, let's say you have a herniated disc in your neck, it's causing pain to shoot down your arm. And then by the time that you see me, let's say it, it's gone away. Well, great. But at least I know if this ever pops up, we know each other, you come back and see me again. Um, so I would, I would say to answer your question specifically, if you have unrelenting pain down your arm or leg, seek some, um, seek some medical input. If you have the symptoms of myelopathy that I described, numb hands, wobbly gait, dexterity issues, then I would urge you to seek medical treatment because that's a bit more serious of an issue than just the pinched nerve in the neck or pinched nerve in the back. Makes sense. So let's talk about diagnosis then. If someone comes in complaining of a herniated disc, what typically happens? So the, uh, the first thing we do is we take a history and we do a physical examination, okay? So I need to know kind of what's going on. And most people, like I said, will know, oh, man, I was doing this and bam, my leg just started hurting. Um, that's, a, that's a good history for a herniated disc. Pain, numbness, weakness can all shoot down the leg, okay? Um, also part of the history. And then physical, we test motor strength. We want to test every single lumbar nerve root. Um, if we're looking at a lumbar issue to make sure everything's strong and symmetric, uh, reflexes is something else that we test. Sometimes if you have, for instance, an S1 radiculopathy or your first sacral nerve is getting pinched from a herniated disc, you'll lose your ankle jerk reflex. Um, not a big deal from a how does this affect my life standpoint, but it helps us from a diagnosis standpoint to know that's what's going on. I described a straight leg raise earlier where we lay a patient down and we raise the affected leg up and usually that can reproduce the radiculopathy or the pain that shoots down the leg. Sometimes you do a contralateral straight leg where we raise the other leg and it still produces pain down the leg that always hurts and that's even more specific for a pinched nerve in the back. We usually pair that with imaging. So Upright x-rays uh, are a mainstay of the imaging that I use. I want to see what your spine looks like when gravity is acting upon it, right? And so um, I want to know, do the bone slip? Is there a spondylolisthesis? Do you have an abnormal curve to your spine? Uh, these are all things that I know better with an upright x-ray than I would with an MRI. But I would say the mainstay of diagnosis, at least to nail the diagnosis down, would be an MRI examination. That shows a disc herniation quite nicely. It shows the nerves as they exit. MRI is a great imaging modality to see the nervous tissue, to see discs and disc degeneration and disc herniations. And so we pair that with a physical examination and with a history to make a diagnosis. Great. So... Say, you know, someone got the x-ray and you diagnose them with a herniated disc. What does treatment look like? What would start off maybe the very basics with rest or ice and then kind of go on from there? So uh, you're right. So we start off at the basics, right? So um, let's say you herniated your disc and I saw you the next day. I would say give it some time, okay? We might start some physical therapy. We might give some medications, but ultimately 
the data would suggest that you'll get better without a surgery, right? So uh, 80 to 90% of people with a herniated disc, the pain will eventually go away. And so that's what we tell people. We want to avoid surgery if we can avoid surgery. Not that there's anything wrong with doing surgery, but it's always better to avoid invasive treatment if we can. So usually it's time is the number one thing we talk about. Um, uh, uh, physical therapy, core strengthening, stretching the lumbar spine, all good things from a biomechanical standpoint to help your spine feel better. And then certain medications we give sometimes, membrane relaxing medication to relax the nerve a little bit, sometimes anti-inflammatories. Uh, a common mainstay of treatment may be to start somebody out on a dose pack of steroids where they start at a higher dose and then over a duration of a few days they taper down to a lower dose to try to just get the inflammation down. What happens is that disc herniates and then you have have this, this scenario where the nerve's getting pinched, it's angry, the disc is not used to being out of, the, out of where it usually lives, and it's causing all this inflammation around the nerve. That inflammation causes the nerve to get angry, and you experience the pain. So anti-inflammatories are great to just relax that whole process, right? Calm the crowd down, everything's going to be fine, and usually people tend to feel a little bit better. What about surgery then? Let's talk a little bit about what that typically looks like for a herniated disc. So in the lumbar spine, a herniated disc without a spondylolisthesis or anything else that we talked about, uh, and the patient meets the criteria for surgery. So let's start with there. What's the criteria for surgery? Usually you have to have pain that's at least there for six weeks. Um, so I always tell people there are three criteria for elective surgery. And although people with terrible leg pain may not feel like it's elective, it still is. So the first criteria is the physical examination, the history that I get, and the imaging all has to fit together. All the puzzle pieces has to coalesce into a nice picture. The second thing is it has to have been there for long enough. If you've seen me two days ago, and that's exactly when you had your herniated disc and you've only had a couple of days of pain, well, then it'll probably get better without me. So you don't meet that criteria. And the third one, as I always tell, is what the patient tells me and is probably the most important one is how bad did this bother you? If you're like, listen, it was really bad. It still hurts. It's starting to get better. I can get by. I notice it's improving. I say, let's wait it out for a little while. But if you get to the point where the pain's so bad, you have a poor quality of life because you can't do the things that you want to do, and it's due to a herniated disc pressing on the nerve and you're interested in surgery, the data would suggest that surgery would be an effective treatment option for you. So to answer your, your first question a long time ago, what would I do surgically-wise? Typically, that's called a microdiscectomy. It's a minimally invasive type surgery where you make a small incision in your back, approach the spine, and use a microscope to take the disc out. So we drill over the bone that lives over where the nerve sits, okay, and we expose the nerve. Then we move that nerve out of the way, and we take the herniated part of the disc out. We don't take the whole disc out um, and, and subject you to uh, a fusion. What we do is we just take that herniated part out that's pressing on the nerve. The goal of most spine surgeries is to decompress the nerve, whether that's doing a laminectomy for stenosis where we take all the bone away in the back or a discectomy like we're talking about here where we just kind of sort of pluck out the disc herniation. At the end of the day, I should be able to look at that nerve and notice that it's decompressed. And usually that's predictable in treating the leg pain effectively. Interesting. So the last thing I want to touch base on here is prevention. If a listener is listening to this podcast and they're trying to be mindful about preventing a herniated disc, maybe they're just getting older, maybe it's hereditary, what advice would you give them in terms of preventative measures? 
So if you're listening to this podcast, I, you know, I'm going to go out on a limb and say most people are kind of interested because maybe they have some leg pain. So if you end up with a herniated disc, the first thing I tell you is it's not necessarily that you do anything wrong. Give yourself a break. A lot of people come to my office and they're like, I don't know why I was doing this or why I was doing that or so on and so forth. And oftentimes I tell them, listen, I've had people that herniate a disc when they're just tying their shoe and that's just normal human activity to do. So the first thing I'd say is give yourself a break. We'll figure this out. We'll take care of it. The second thing I would say, if you really don't have any leg pain, you just want to prevent it and have a healthy back, um, you know, eating a healthy diet for weight control, doing core strengthening. So you strengthen your abdominal musculature. It unloads the pressure on the spine. Your thoracic spine, you don't have a lot of disc herniations there because you have that rib cage, right? That's really supporting it. The only thing that supports your lumbar spine is your abdominal musculature. And then uh, keeping the weight down is very important for your, for your spine health. The reason being is because your spine functions like a crane, or at least it's a good way to think about it. And so that crane, when it lifts a heavy load, needs a counterweight in the back, right? And so the counterweight is your spine, the facet joints in the back, your spine muscles that are all holding the weight up. The weight is your weight in front of you, the weight that you hold in your chest and belly. So the less you have weight in front of you, the less you need to stress that counterweight or use that counterweight. And so a lot of times with just some weight loss, patients will notice that some of their pain tends to get better and go away. That's a very easy thing to say. Somebody that has really bad leg pain due to a herniated disc, um, it's, it's easy for me to sit in a chair and say lose weight. It's, it's a harder thing to do it. But nonetheless, it's something we have to have a conversation about. And it, it leads to long-term spine health. That's great advice. Thank you. So that's all the time we have today. Thank you, Dr. Pelly, for being here. Well, thanks for having me. And thanks for listening. If you're looking to learn more about herniated discs and treatment options available, visit clevelandclinic.org slash spine. If you're looking to listen to more Health Essentials podcasts featuring Cleveland Clinic experts, visit clevelandclinic.org slash podcasts or subscribe on iTunes. And as always, don't forget to follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Cleveland Clinic, all one word. Thanks for listening. We hope you enjoyed the podcast. This concludes this Cleveland Clinic Health Essentials podcast. Thank you for listening. Join us again soon.